Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Uva Radio News Podcast. Uh, my name's Niall, and I'm joined today by Ricardo. Hello, Ricardo. Hello, Niall. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm great. Thank you. Good. Okay. Uh, this week's news is going to take us first to talking about COVID. Have you heard of COVID? Uh, no idea, really. Like, uh, oh, yes. you wait. Something happened in the world, right? Yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah, completely yeah. sure, though. Oh, you wait till you hear about this. Very exciting. <laughs> um, so we're going to be talking about the COVID vaccine and also some interesting findings in various scientific studies that have linked COVID with mental health. We're then going to move on to a story here in the Netherlands about a minister who has made some very controversial statements about homosexuality and whether or not it should be permitted to be um, not necessarily taught, but whether or not homosexuality should be permitted in certain schools. That will be our second story. But let's start with COVID. Yes, yeah, so Niall, uh, probably you have heard that uh, this is the news of the week. Uh, we had like really good and hopeful news about one of the COVID-19 vaccines. Yes. It's been develop- developed, uh, the one developed by uh, these two companies, BioNTech and Pfizer. Yeah. And the thing is, like early data released by those two companies suggest that their vaccine protects more than 90% of people from developing COVID-19 symptoms. These are just uh, preliminary results from a test on uh, 43,500 people. And there weren't any safety concerns, which wow. is good news as well. And now the companies uh, plan to apply for emergency approval to use it uh, probably by the end of November. And a limited number of people might get the vaccine this year. Wow. It's not sure if it's going to happen this year, but the best uh, thing could be late this year, maybe January. And yeah, I mean, actually, the company executives have said that by the end of the year, it will have manufactured enough doses to immunize between 15 million or 20 million people. Around the world? Yeah. Right, okay. So I guess there are various countries trying to jostle for those first doses. Uh, yeah, actually, there have been some some agreements already. Uh, they have an agreement with uh, with uh, the US to supply them with 100 million doses. Uh, there are also agreements with the EU, with the UK, Canada and Japan. Uh, the EU has agreed to buy up to 300 million doses. And it is still not clear how the distribution between the member states will be. But it is expected to follow the line of the European Commission agreement with several of these companies developing these vaccines. And probably they will organize the delivery in a proportional way in terms of share of population within the EU. Right. And then how will they be distributed within the countries? Yeah, uh, that's what we are not uh, not um, completely sure. Every country will have like a different policy, but uh, we can expect that... Um, Obviously, uh, there will be some groups of the population that will get the vaccine first. Uh, Old, is, like older people, yeah, I guess. All, and, yeah, and healthcare workers, for example. Yeah. But they estimate that the general population won't have access probably until the spring, which right. is the, the period that the most optimistic views point out as the moment we might be back to a kind of, of normality. Normality. But I yeah. guess even if they haven't got enough vaccines within, you know, January, February, for 100% of the population of our countries. It's still a big step forward if you can immunise the people who are most at risk from COVID, right? Because if you can say, well, actually now everyone over the age of 60 is safe, then that means that the younger people who are less likely to get severe symptoms, we can all start to go outside more, yeah. mix more. Because I guess the big worry about for a country is not whether or not we can protect every single person, but, you know, pragmatically, how can we stop our hospitals from being overloaded with elderly or vulnerable people who have got a really serious case of COVID? 
Yeah, it's pretty much going back to normality step by step, right? And that's definitely the, the first step that has to be done. And it is just not uh, a matter of, of how we can distribute this vaccine, but the good news are also related with how effective the vaccine is because uh, the FDA, which is like the federal agency in the US that has to approve the use and distribution of, of the vaccine, uh, they were willing to accept an uh, effectiveness, effectiveness rate of 50%. Really? Yeah, because that's what the experts uh, expected. Like wow. 90% is like a crazy uh, number. This this will be one of the most effective vaccines we have. And obviously, these are just preliminary results. I yeah. mean, because... Uh, so basically, the process uh, was uh, done. Like half of the of the participants uh, received two doses of the vaccine uh, three weeks apart, because you know that you need two doses of this vaccine, right? And half of them received a placebo. So uh, what they did pretty much was uh, wait till some of those people in the sample uh, get the COVID nineteen, and these first results are based on ninety four volunteers who developed uh, COVID nineteen symptoms, and yeah, that's how they estimate that uh, the vaccine is over ninety percent effective, which is uh, really unexpected, unexpected data in a positive way. Yeah, that's really great news. Um, so even if everyone gets the vaccine, again, 10% of people may still get COVID, but it just means that we're lowering the numbers of people who are going to need medical attention. And it, I guess it just makes it less likely that this thing is going to continue to spread really quickly and pervasively throughout society. And hopefully hopefully we can get out of this because I mean it's been difficult I don't know about you but I've found this second bit of lockdown hard I, I personally the first one when there was a certain novelty to it and there was a sense of togetherness and yep. you know that unity I think helped to create a sense of duty behind staying at home it's like I will do this this feels fine I feel like I'm doing the right thing I'm cool with this but this second time around I'm still obviously going to stay at home and it, I understand the reasons why there is another lockdown. But my my it's messed with my head a bit more this time. I mean, we're both studying. I don't know how you found it, but I've never had more time to do my work and yet never have I felt less motivated to do it. There's something about the unending chasm of the rest of my life at the moment, which yeah. is just kind of like, I just need some change. I need... And it's, you know, I've, I've found it's really knocked my head a little bit and made me feel anxious yeah it's definitely been more difficult and for me the main problem is like not having an horizon right mm. like not as you said we have a lot of time to do uh, our school work or whatever but you start asking yourself why am i doing this if i don't even know how the world is going to be in one year yeah and yeah actually it's, it's also true what you pointed before that uh, the first time we didn't really know what are we facing what, what what were we facing and uh, this time there is also this angry feeling of okay yeah i'm doing this again but you can see that governments through the world probably haven't done their homework yeah and they should have done much more in terms of you know hire, hiring more healthcare workers investing more money in fighting against this virus yeah so it's like okay um a responsible citizen i will do this i will go through this again but it's more difficult to ask uh, for people to do this kind of stuff if you feel like the governments are not doing their, their homework properly. Yeah. But um, to come to the second part of this, this, this question, I guess we always think of COVID as being a physical disease. You get it. It can affect your breathing, your lungs. It can carry all kinds of symptoms. But there seems there, there has been news recently 
a study showing that there's actually a strong connection between COVID and issues with mental health. Yeah, this is an, an Oxford study uh, which had like uh, two really good findings. Uh, the first one is uh, like one in five people who have had COVID-19 are diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder such as anxiety, depression or insomnia within three months of testing positive for the virus. So after that. Right. Uh, but obviously we need to be careful with this with this uh, causality because obviously, I mean, after having COVID, uh, you could develop anxiety, depression or insomnia because you have been worried about your own health or yeah. you have been worried about uh, infecting others. Actually, even depression and low moods could be like a symptoms of COVID already. Yeah, yeah. And I guess there's also, you know, we're all locked down, but there have been pockets of freedom where we've been able to go outside yeah. and but I guess if you if you've got COVID that must be an incredibly isolating experience you can't be in near you can't have anyone near you for fear yeah. of passing it on I can totally see why that would start to play on your mind and make you feel lonely yeah worried so I would say that probably the mental health issues after COVID could be more related actually with the with the atmosphere created by COVID with the context than with the with the virus itself right Right. So, I mean, this isn't this study isn't telling us that COVID can give you depression. It's just saying that there is a correlation between yeah. people who get COVID who then end up suffering yeah. sad mental health issues. Yeah. And actually, there are other findings, uh, which is like the other way around. And it says that uh, those people with pre-existing mental health issues are more likely to get uh, to get uh, COVID. Oh, really? Uh, actually, uh, they were 65% more likely to be diagnosed with COVID. But again, here we have to be careful with causality again, because yeah. you can think about, for example, socioeconomic context, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you are uh, um, a poor person, you are more likely to have like a... Uh, worst health condition and probably you are also uh, more likely to get COVID because of your living conditions you're it's more probably that you live like in a small house where you cannot really isolate yourself so so it's it's this the same conditions that can cause mental health issues in terms of your life status and your environment are also the same conditions that can lead to you contracting COVID yeah in, in a different way but at the end of the day they're the same thing and actually uh Mental health sometimes, sorry, um, having like a bad uh, health situation, physically health is a consequence of mental health, right? Mm. Probably uh, a lot of people with mental health issues, uh, it's more likely to get uh, uh, involved in, in addictions, in drug addictions, in alcohol abuse. And obviously that undermines your physical condition yeah. and therefore makes you more uh, vulnerable against yeah. COVID, right? And I guess anyone who has had to deal with anxiety and depression either in isolated periods or long term I'm sure would be able to tell you that one thing that falls by the wayside is your desire and your motivation and your ability to just to take care of yourself to eat properly to exercise yeah. to go outside and get fresh air and all of these other things the fundamentals that can lead you to be healthy they can fall by the wayside so again I, I can see why certain uh people their lives create the conditions that you would just be more susceptible to any illness covid yeah. being obviously the one that's going around at the moment yeah that's definitely the main point of of, of this study i say like we shouldn't uh, say that the virus itself is creating this this mental health problems but the conditions created by the virus yeah so 
Okay. Um, well, it's definitely, I think, one more example of how COVID has made us all think very, it's, well, it's made very stark some of the inequalities in our societies. And I think this is just another example of this. And I hope that one of the legacies of COVID, when the vaccine comes and it's all said and done, is that we don't forget that. We don't forget how the inequalities in our society and the difference between how people live and how people are being forced to live, uh, hopefully that won't be forgotten and we yeah. can keep on talking about that. That always matters. Yeah. yeah. But uh, okay, on to another story. So this one brings us to the Netherlands. Um, some of you and Ricardo, you may have seen this. Uh, there was a bit of controversy this week because the education minister here in the Netherlands, Ari Slob, who is a member of an Orthodox Christian party, Christen Uni, um, he has defended the practice in some Christian schools here in the Netherlands to have parents sign a covenant, essentially an agreement, a, a contract, rejecting homosexuality. Wow. Yeah. Um, this is a strange one. I mean, most of the schools in the Netherlands are state-funded. They rely on public <laughs> money, but many of them are controlled by churches, Protestant churches, Catholic churches, whichever have you. Um, his argument at the time was that the schools have the constitutional freedom to decide how to deal with issues of religion and sexuality. Now, this has caused a huge backlash. Um, one of the interesting things or one of the encouraging things, I thought that the backlash was led by a police organisation called Pink in Blue, which mm -hmm. essentially is people who are LGBTQ and members of the police force who started uh, calling on Facebook for people to go and send formal complaints about this to the government. Um, as a result, there's been a real backlash. So the prosecution service is investigating whether Slob broke the law with his comment. Slob himself has since backtracked uh, a quote from him. If the schools contravene the concept of a state of a safe climate at school, then they have to be adapted, which seems to me like the sort of reactionary comment you might make when you realised you said something terrible Everyone hates you for it. And now you're trying to dig yourself out of the hole. But I think the damage was be done, uh, has been done. And he probably won't face any criminal charges. There are laws here, as I think there are in many countries, where it, there's a privilege for ministers and members of parliament to be able to say whatever they whatever want, they want yeah. to parliament, which I understand the basis of. But it does mean that he is protected by that law. But it's... I think, you know, all of that aside and, and the fate of slob aside, I think it's it raises a very interesting debate and a very important debate about when is it up to these schools to decide what is and isn't taught? And especially when they're state funded in a society where the majority of people are definitely accepting if if they may hold some prejudices i think the majority of people in the netherlands it's safe to say are accepting that people should be able to have their own lifestyles and it's not my business to dictate certainly not my business to dictate whether or not their sexuality or their gender or anything like that qualifies them or disqualifies them for access to education yeah i mean for me the debate it's really important to take into consideration if we are talking about state-funded schools, which I think this is the case, right? Yes. Or private schools. Uh, in state-funded uh, schools, for me, there shouldn't be any kind of discrimination, no matter what. But even in private schools, discriminations like this one shouldn't be allowed as well. Because obviously, if you're a private school, 
you are kind of free to to determine your guidelines, but you are not free to to dictate guidelines that are against human rights. Yeah, guidelines that promote uh, promote hate speech. Yeah, I mean, if you are signing a document uh, saying that, uh, okay, um, yeah, I reject homosexual behavior, yeah, as, as if that was a thing to be fair. Yeah, but uh, that that's hate speech. So your freedom of being a private school and and uh, dictating your own your own conditions, um, yeah, that shouldn't be like an excuse to to promote this kind of behavior. Obviously, you are you are not expecting some uh, people uh, supporting homosexual rights uh, to bring their kids to that school but anyway that shouldn't be uh, um, a justification yeah i mean i think our response to this is largely one of indignation mainly because it seems absurd that you would stop a child from getting education just because they or their family or whatever are either um either there is a member of that family who is gay or transgender or whatever, or they simply accept that that's a thing and are happy for that to be a thing for other people. It seems insane, but it comes, I guess it comes down to this, a fundamental debate between the freedom of private individuals to only face what they want to face in terms of ideas and thoughts and conversations. And whether or not they can actually just say, do you know what, I don't I don't want this in my life. And the question then is, well, should that extend to an, uh, an educational institution that's funded by the state? My, I, I would think not, certainly yeah. not. When it's state money and that money comes from taxpayers, the majority of whom do not agree with that point of view. Especially in a country like the Netherlands, right? Absolutely. But then you get into a real difficulty because all of this is rooted in religion. And we know that religion is not is not a clean subject in terms of deciding what should and shouldn't be allowed to say to be said, what rights uh, private individuals who believe in religion, um, what rights they should and shouldn't have. And I guess that's where it's still open for debate, because these people would say that this is their private lifestyle choice based on a religion that they have made the basis of their life. And yeah. shouldn't they be allowed to live that way? Yeah, but uh, I think it's like what we were saying before. It is your freedom of decision shouldn't go against uh, human rights themselves, right? And I think this is like a clear human rights violation, making you sign a document against some part of the of the population. And for me, the the, the key of the question in here is the fact that we are talking about state funded, mm. state funded schools. For me, in state finding schools there shouldn't even be a debate. It's like what you said. I mean, this is being paid with money from people who are probably in a huge majority against mm. this. Uh, in a private school, you can have the debate, okay? Yeah. I don't even think it should be because what I'm telling you is you're promoting uh, hate speech. But, yeah, and I think all this backlash against him, I think like the, the declarations were like really shocking, especially in a country like the, like the Netherlands. Yeah. And especially talking about state-funded schools, for me, I think people was angry and people was pretty much surprised as well. Yeah, but I think it's so. It's worth remem uh, remembering. As I was researching this, I came across something interesting. Um, have you ever heard of the Nashville Statement? Nope. The Nashville Statement um, 
is essentially a document that was signed, uh, was created and signed by a bunch of people in the US who believe in the fundamentals of the Bible, specifically as it relates to the idea of gender and sexuality. Um, So the Nashville Statement was written by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood in Nashville, Tennessee. And um, basically, and I'll I'll read you some quotes here, um, they say that God made us, that's that's people, Mm -hmm. for himself. Um, Maybe I can try and do a Nashville accent here. (laughs) We are not our own. Our true identity as male and female persons is given by God. It is not only foolish, but hopeless to try to make ourselves what God did not create us to be. Essentially saying that we are not autonomous. We do not have control over our sexuality, over our gender. We are man and woman, as defined in the most traditional biblical sense of having a certain set of genitalia that's for a certain use which is to create babies shocking but what's more shocking is that a version of this nashville statement last year was signed by 250 protestant um mps here in the netherlands Mm -hmm. which just goes to show you that there is still you know these guys are the these 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 um Elected officials are the representatives of the people, and 250 of them is not an insignificant number, which just indicates that for all I think we think of the Netherlands as being a very liberal, progressive country, yeah. there's still a real undercurrent of religious fundamentalism uh, that dictates the culture and the society. And there are enough people who believe in this that they want to try and impose that on the system in this case, through schools and education. I guess my question is, should they be allowed to? I mean, obviously, I think these opinions, even though I don't agree with them, uh, they are respectable. I mean, and especially if people have elected them and they're in the parliament. But for me, like this, these shocking moments in countries like, like the Netherlands are sometimes uh, like a consequence of having such a split uh, parliament and having like a government with a lot of uh, different uh, political parties that in these situations you find yourself with a minister that comes from a ultra-religious party and do this kind of, of things. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think they should be allowed to do that, but what they shouldn't be allowed is to try to to put all this ideology inside education because for mm. me it's kind of of uh, of a terrible behavior yeah like trying to influence kids that they cannot decide agree. by themselves right yeah. education should be open you yeah. know that you shouldn't start closing off subjects i think the idea with education is to discuss as much as you can debate as many ideas as you can and go forward from there that seems to be the basis for any healthy democratic society yeah. and, and if you want like a really religious education uh, it's okay to go to a private school who gives you this kind of education but I don't think it should be necess- you can have like a very religious education without uh, going against human rights again uh, like yeah discriminating you would, people you would hope so um, Ricardo I think that's we're really nearly out of time yeah. so I think we're going to have to end that debate there but there's definitely a lot more that could be said on it and it's a really interesting topic yeah. very interesting topic and, and listeners at home I'm sure you have your own points of view Um discuss them with each other i think it's a an important conversation to have but to wrap up today we We have our funny fact right we have our funny fact normally we'd bring you some events but covid has said that we can't so yeah i don't know google google online film festivals or something maybe we can say that um 
there are no events, but probably it's good to know that apparently next week, uh, libraries, museums, not bars so far, but uh, these kind of, of places are reopening again. Well, that's, that's something. So probably something. we will have some events next week. Okay, cool. Uh, yes, all right. So to round off with the funny fact, um, Donald Trump. I don't know if you no. knew this, but I think one of the first ever presidents, or certainly one of the first presidents in a long time, not to have a dog or a pet. In yeah, the White well, House. I mean, one animal was enough in the White House. Right? Ah, yeah, it's very good. <laughs> it's very joke. good. Um, Melania was too busy cleaning up yeah, after him, yeah. let alone a puppy. Um, a return to form then from Biden, who's going to be bringing his two dogs, Champ and Major. And I think it's very lovely that Major is going to be the first dog rescued from a shelter to live in the White House. Oh, how nice. Yeah, it's really nice. But did you know that before there, were, there was uh, Champ and Major the dogs... Theodore Roosevelt, I don't know if you knew, but Theodore Roosevelt was a big lover of animals. And when world leaders find out, found out just how much he loved animals, they started sending him all sorts of exotic pets. Yeah, like a competition, right? And some, probably, probably <laughs> trying to outdo themselves. One particular example is the animal sent from the emperor of Ethiopia. It was a hyena called Bill. So there was actually a hyena in the White House. There was a hyena in the White House. Apparently, Theodore Roosevelt at first wasn't too keen on the hyena because he thought, as animals, hyenas are a bit cowardly. But <laughs> I think he gave it a chance and it lived in the White House for a bit. Apparently, Roosevelt taught it some tricks, would feed it from the table, but eventually decided that was all a bit too much. And so sent it off to a zoo to live yeah. out the rest of its days. You can actually check in Wikipedia uh, a list with all the White House animals. And it's, ah, yes. You have like a really nice surprises there. Yeah, there you go. Okay, that's everything for this week. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with more news.